Relatively Geeky presents Doom Speak, Doom Quest, Iron Man 149 and 150. Welcome to the latest episode of Doom Speak, which was once the only Doctor Doom themed podcast on the entire internet. And at this point, we stand firmly in the belief and secure in the knowledge that we are currently one of the top two Doctor Doom-themed podcasts on the entire internet. Darn you, Douglas Wolk and Voice of Latveria. But as I've learned from Doom himself, just because someone is a competitor, it doesn't mean that they are an enemy who needs to be crushed. Yet. As we've mentioned in our last few episodes, the plan with Doom Speak is to alternate episodes between Doom 2099 and other classic appearances of the rightful ruler of Latveria. And this time, it's one of those. And spoilers, this one is a legitimate classic story. Also, by the way, if you're listening to this in real time, as these are uh, released on the Relatively Geeky feed, we will not have a Doom Speak in July 2021. We'll be doing back-to-back quarter bins, which will squeeze out Doom. And looking ahead at the calendar, there's a chance we won't have one in August because of the rescheduled free comic book day, which, of course, we need to cover as well. So I'm not totally sure when we will be getting back to 2099. Perhaps we can squeeze it in in August. Uh, We'll see. But as you know, Dr. Doom takes a nice long beach vacation every summer. He just likes to let go, let his mind wander, recharge himself, so he can spend a solid 10, 10 and a half months or so every year ruling his nation rightly. So I'm saying he probably won't notice if it ends up being a few months off. I mean, he'd actually probably appreciate it. I certainly know that one thing he'll appreciate is the discussion to follow, wherein we'll cover one of his all-time great adventures. But first, a little feedback. Siskoid from the Fire and Water Network said that the 2099 books were on his to-read list and that these episodes were serving as an encouragement. Luke Giaconetti said that he was glad that Doom 2099 was back. Honestly, with the alien ship in the Himalayas, I honestly thought we were going to go in a fin-fang-foom direction, so I liked the twist with the classic sci-fi trope. Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes replied with an appropriately awesome Hail Doom picture. Thank you, Gene. Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, said these issues were not his favorite moments of Doom 2099, but they were still fun. Really looking forward to seeing you cover the mid-20s and beyonds. Ah, yes, Clinton, so am I. So am I. And social media support for the last episode came from Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Vic from Phoenix, Chris Lydon, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, the new Days of High Adventure podcast, Karen from Between the Pages, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Dr. Ange, J.K. Guero, Billy D. from A World on Fire, Gord Tolton from the Prairie Justice podcast, and charter member of Food, Friends of Old Doom, John from Married, Watching Cartoons, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Baby Skeletor, Randy Watts, Spy Vinyl, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So with that, and with your appetites whetted for action, we're going to take a break here, play a podcast promo, and come back for a little Doom v. Iron Man action. (laughs) 
Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. And we're back. And by we, I don't just mean me and my army of Doctor Doom action figures. I... I'm being joined by a colleague on this one because a team up of great heroes demands a team up of slightly better than average podcasters. So I'm being joined by one of Iron Man's best assistant lackeys in the whole internet and one of my good buddies too. It's Sir Luke of the Upstate. Welcome. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction and for having me on, Alan. I've I've always strived to be slightly above average, and so I'm <laughs> glad that I've I've hit those lofty goals. Your efforts are noted. <laughs> so it is always good to have you on the uh, on the network. I I hope the green room there is cleaned up after the Sutherland's visit. Uh, as you know, they tend to treat studios the way the Who treated hotel rooms. Yeah, there's there's a uh, kind of a reddish brown stain in in one side. I'm not going to ask questions. Hey, I know no. what the Sutherlands do on their off days. I'm just going <laughs> to leave it alone. But just just FYI. Just uh, so we're here to talk about Doom, and we're here to talk about some other guy too. <laughs> and uh, so when did Iron Man become a fandom for you? I have kind of an odd origin for Iron Man. I actually got into Iron Man in about 1995 with the cartoon, the uh, second mm, Iron Man sure. cartoon, the one that aired on the Marvel Action Hour block, along with the Fantastic Four cartoon. In my neck of the woods, that aired on Sunday on Channel 11, WPIX. Shout and, out to Tom Panneries. Yeah, you know, Tom, my brother, my dad, we all start talking about <laughs> Channel 11 and Channel 9, WOR. You know, you had the Yankees on one, the Mets on the other. There you go. But, um, uh, yeah, but it was that cartoon and the accompanying toy line from Toy Biz. That was what got me into Iron Man was I started watching. I st really started collecting the toys even before, wow. the, uh, before I started watching the show. And then that just kind of led me into it. So first issue of Iron Man I bought was when I was a... Uh, I was a freshman in high school it was iron man number 321 and uh that was right in the middle of the crossing so uh, everybody's favorite iron man story <laughs> I ironic you say 321 because and i don't know if i've confessed this publicly but i did double check and the marvel title that i own the most issues of is iron man uh-huh i have straight on from 145 are you ready to 319 <laughs> so right before the crossing then. exactly uh and but between the nine annuals and a few miscellaneous i have almost 200 issues and second among marvels is rom that's a distant mm. second at like 80 79 or 80 yeah so uh i never would have specifically called myself an iron man fan but the numbers don't lie i've got a ton yeah. of these right uh, just to close the loop on that, 319 actually is the first part of the crossing. That is the well, first. Well, that's hit. probably what scared me away. Yeah, written by uh, Terry Cavanaugh, who uh, mm. who wrote that whole run there. But uh, yeah, so I, but uh, despite all that, despite you know, four months later, <laughs> going to Team Tony, and I'm not going to lie, at 15 years old, I was legitimately excited for Team Tony. I thought that was yeah. a cool story. I was like, oh, this I'm going to be on the ground full floor. This cool new direction for Iron Man, and that didn't last. <laughs> um, then I was on the ground floor for uh, Heroes Reborn, this cool new direction for Iron Man. And, well, we know how, how long that lasted. 
I, I got to admit, it's, I did pretty well. Let me just say within my run. Yeah, you ended right at the end of, yeah, you ended right at the end of Len Kaminsky. Len Kaminsky's run generally considered to be one of the, uh, one of the more popular ones of that era. Mm -hmm. I mean, that introduced the War Machine armor, who is what mm -hmm. Len Kaminsky, and the, the Hulkbuster was also introduced in, uh, in Kaminsky's run. But you know what? I will say this. After Teen Tony, after Heroes Reborn, we did get Heroes Return, uh, Kurt mm -hmm. Busiek. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was not only a fantastic series, and I really have a lot of affection for volume three. That was also a very popular series. I remember the time it won, I want to say it won Wizard Magazine's ongoing of the year one time during wow. that era when, when Busiek was, was writing it. And that was what, that was what really solidified me. Like, I was already like a hardline Iron Man fan at that point, just from the little bit I had read. But right. that was the series that inspired me to go back and start buying up all the back issues and, and start my run. I'm, I'm about 30 issues away nice. from, from getting the entire run. All of the issues are from, they're in the 50s and lower. Mm -hmm, sure i believe so it's it's very um that's it's about as close as i'm gonna get now i'm starting to get into some some pricey books yeah. uh, iron man 55 has the first appearance of some space bad guy that people seem to Ooh. like nowadays <laughs> yeah <laughs> talk about a book i should have bit the bullet on and bought yeah. when it was only three digits right <laughs> oh please i don't even want to hear that kind of <laughs> about this network that is yeah <laughs> well if it's if it's any consolation the two comics that we're talking about tonight, I have the, uh, I still have the price tags on them. Uh, Iron Man 149, I bought from the price tag. It looks like it was from Borderlands in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, which mm -hmm. actually is now my local comic shop, but first started shopping at Borderlands when I was an undergrad at Clemson. Um, they, besides comics, they also sell uh, miniatures and war games. Oh, and perfect. every end, either end of January, beginning of February, they have what is called their creatively named big annual sale. <laughs> and so we used to roll up and buy miniatures for Warhammer or whatever game we were playing, but I'd also get comics. And so I got, I have it right here. This one at, at uh, Borderlands was $2 nice. for Iron Man 149. And it's in, it's in pretty good shape. I got to admit, no, uh, no obvious defects from, from looking at it. Iron Man 150 was from Planet Comics. Now, Planet Comics has a few locations now, but I, this one I'm sure was at the, their original Anderson location. Um, Anderson is right down the road from Clemson. We used to go to Planet Comics once a, once a month or so. And this one, it, the price tag says $5. I'm pretty sure I got this one for $4. Though. Gotcha, okay. I'll allow so I'm pretty sure I got it at a 20% off sale. So, mm -hmm. you know, these two issues for six bucks, I'm not going to complain too no, loudly no, about that, no. all things considered. Even even given, you know, the normal standard price points <laughs> that we work with here on Relatively Geeky. It's quite possible that uh, this is an, an early bit of my Doctor Doom fandom, because this would have been the fifth and sixth issues that i picked up of this title mm. so this would have been early on because i would have gotten these pretty close to when they were coming out uh either that or i so i don't i don't think i i don't think i went back that far with the with the back issues i was probably picking these up new or fairly recently these are odd because sometimes you see these at a, at a pretty decent price and sometimes you see them more just a bit more expensive i think right uh, you know, it's hard to say before the movie, Iron Man um, sure, was yeah. always relatively cheap in, in the back issue bins. I mean, uh, you know, Demon in a Bottle, uh, first appearance of War Machine, first appearance of Hulkbuster, you know, 55, first appearance of Thanos, even most of like the secondary characters and the um, uh, the villain first appearances weren't that bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mandarin was back in Tales of Suspense, Titanium Man was Tales of Suspense. A lot of them were back in that days, but like Controller and stuff like that, those weren't too bad. Um, but after the movie, obviously, it, right. Iron Man has stayed more elevated. And, and the, these are ones that sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. I remember being in um, just out of college and getting a huge run, a huge run of Dave Michelinie and Bob Layton mm -hmm. and yes. then Denny O'Neill's run and then their second Bob, the second Bob and Dave mm -hmm. run off of <laughs> eBay for less than a dollar an issue. Nice. You know, something like 75 comics for 70 bucks shipped or something like right. that. So. I, I, you know, I did okay. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've managed to see, I said, probably about half of those ones that I own, not these ones, 
Yes. Um, but about half of them in various quarter bins along the line. Right. We, we did yeah. cover one on the quarter bin a while ago, um, early days of that show. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one with Shaman, wasn't that's it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I believe I solicited some pre-feedback from you. Yes, I, I do a, recall that, that one. And that's one. It's 195 with Shaman yeah. on the cover. There you go. Now, have you read the latest version, the latest, the, the, uh, the current run, the ones written by Christopher Cantwell after you stole him <laughs> from the Doctor Doom title? I have been keeping up with the current series by uh, Christopher Cantwell. I'm about, I'm about two issues behind just because of the way my mail order works. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting series. It's, you know, the, uh, the when a new writer comes into Iron Man, a lot of times the kind of the trend is to say, we're going to put Tony back to basics. And, uh, and right, that's sure, what Cantwell sure. has done here in a very real and literal sense where uh, Tony is, is given up, you know, running the company. He's given up the flashy cars. He's living in, I think he's living in a brownstone in Brooklyn, driving an old muscle car. He's been hanging out with, uh, with Hellcat, Patsy Walker. Mm, mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, it, the book is very up and down. Like there are parts of it that I really like, but there, again, there's this trend among modern iron man writers to to have this idea that that tony needs to be redeemed right and say what you will about dan slot and people will say whatever they want about dan slot and i've said some things <laughs> yeah, yeah. that of that i will about dan slot i mean he, he killed off half of excalibur off screen i'm just saying but uh the previous uh series tony stark iron man was did not really fall into that as much it was much more a celebration of of tony as a character mm-hmm. and really putting him over as a baby face whereas here Cantwell seems to think that that he needs redemption mm. and it, it was very funny too because you know we see this a lot again in not just iron man but most modern comics when the new writer came in the new series started it was a complete clearing the decks to the point that one of the few plot points that was even addressed in the new series of the old one was the romantic relationship between Tony and Janet Van Dyne mm-hmm. and Janet dumps him in like one page where she doesn't even grow from wasp size. <laughs> she basically is like, yeah, this isn't working Bye." And it's like, okay, I guess uh, not a fan of Tony and Janet being an, an item. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's talk about these ones that we have. We'll go over these uh, uh, one at a time. So we start with the Invincible Iron Man 149, cover date of August 1981, and a cover price of 50 cents. Although the one I'm looking at is the True Believers $1 reprint version ah. from late last year. I know that's a complete ripoff, <laughs> a buck for this 50 cent book, but uh, what can I say? Uh, are, are you looking at a digital version? Did you find your old ones? Is that what you're looking I, at? Sounded yeah, like? I have my, I have my actual... My nice. actual copies here. I, my Iron Man books are, are pretty well organized, unlike some other stuff in my collection. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've got I've got my actual uh, print copy here, and it's very interesting actually. Um, in the letters column, they address the different um, the price box about mm-hmm. how sometimes they have rectangles and sometimes oh, they right. have diamonds. They actually address that in the letter in the bullpen bulletins, excuse me. And so this one must have come from a newsstand, a drugstore, a 7-Eleven, something mm-hmm. not in the direct market because it right. has the little rectangular right. one. That's what I've got for 150. My, my 150 is my real copy, but figured yeah. I picked up that true believer last year. Look so at my, that. My, it's certainly yeah. glossy paper and, and bright modern coloring for better or worse. Right. I, I think I have a reprint of this one as well that was included with a Marvel Legends toy. I mm, think it's in my nice. kids' box of kids' comics. I want to say, because I know it had, it, it just, you know, it, it, it doesn't have, it just says, if it's Iron Man Doom Quest, and it says reprint on the bottom and stuff. The cover of this one by John Romita Jr. and Bob Layton shows an extreme close-up of Doom's faceplate, one eye slot showing one bloodshot eye. In the reflection, we've got Iron Man flying in right adam so to me that's a solid attention getting cover oh yeah you know you got you do get your hero front front and center but it's clear that somebody else is going to play a big role in this Mm -hmm. too and any any marvel fan will most likely recognize this the the right angles the squared off Mm -hmm. angles of the Mm -hmm. eye slits 
And then the cover copy where it just simply says Doom Quest, Quest. Yes. with the exclamation point because we mean it, you know. <laughs> the uh, uh, now I have to thank MarvelHeroesLibrary.com for providing a synopsis that I used as a jumping off point for mine. And uh, the story is Doom Quest without an exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> this was plotted by Michelini and Layton, scripted by Michelini with art by J.R.J.R. and Layton. So we start in the middle of the Atlantic where modern day pirates with helicopters and assault weapons are attacking a ship suddenly iron man appears and it only takes a few seconds for him to rout the bandits he arranges for the ship to be met by the coast guard and returns to the stark complex on long island there he changes into tony stark giving a few moments of thought to the missing bethany mccabe he rushes to an executive meeting there he rebukes one of his regional managers for selling some electronics to Latveria, and he fires him and points out that Iron Man, fortunately, was able to intercept the shipment. We then meet the star of the show. Centuries in the past, Dr. Doom is being taught by the wizard Cagliostro all that the aged sorcerer knows about magic. He hands over a cask of jewels as payment and returns to the present via the time cube. His technician, Hauptmann, brings the bad news that the deal with Stark has been canceled. Doom rebukes him, leaving Hauptmann to ponder thoughts of revenge for that insult and for his brother's death at the hands of Doom. That night, Iron Man and Doom meet to settle their international business dispute. The battle is not even close. Doom fires a set of electrical wires which entangle Iron Man and interfere with the circuitry. By the time old Shellhead figures out how to get free, Doom has departed. But Stark is not giving up this easy. And the next day, Rhodey flies Tony to Latveria, and he's met at the airport by the soldiers of the pretender to the Latverian throne, King Zorba. They give Tony a map to Castle Doom, hoping that Iron Man can eliminate Doom's threat to their traitorous usurpation of his rightful rule of the kingdom. And, you know, Iron Man's used to being a lackey, so sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so he jets to the castle, gets past the illusion-based defenses, as well as three guard robots. He finds Doom awaiting him on a balcony. Iron Man demands the stolen tech, Doom rightly dismisses the errand boy. Iron Man, in his folly, wants to fight, so the hand-to-hand -hand battle is on. And it ends surprisingly, with the time cube sending them far into the past. Hauptman has taken his revenge to be continued. So, let's talk about this one first, and... I guess this comic, let me double check, it is technically titled Iron Man. <laughs> so uh, how are the Iron Man bits of this? Well, you know, one of the hallmarks of Dave Michelini and Bob Layton's runs on Iron Man was that they gave generally equal shrift to Tony Stark and Iron Man. And we get that in this issue. We start out with an action sequence with Iron Man, but we shift almost immediately to a business, a personal, mm -hmm. you know, business mm -hmm. sequence with Tony Stark. And so we really do cover it. And the other aspect that I, I really like this is that it's not just Iron Man has to go fight the unicorn because the unicorn is causing trouble somewhere. <laughs> it is something that happens in Tony Stark's world as a businessman yeah. that drives the story and forces Iron Man to come into it. Only Iron Man could be the one, the hero in this story because of the connection with Stark. Right. And that, that is one of the, again, one of the hallmarks of uh, Bob and Dave's eras on Iron Man. They, they really put an emphasis on both halves of his character. And that's, I think, why these, these, these runs endure so long. I, I also, I think Tony and Tony and Iron Man both come out looking fantastic in this as far as their, their ability to assess situations and problem solve mm -hmm. and overcome. But, you know, your boy, your boy Doom, he, 
<laughs> he gets some good bits in here too. <laughs> I enjoyed this one. I gotta say, yes. Um, we, we have again these two worlds, and then they converge. It's like Doom knows what Iron Man has to do, and, and Iron Man knows what Doom has to do. I mean, this is a business transaction gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they both have to fight for what they think is you know, appropriate. You know, they're just not doing it in, you know, like, say, a court. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where, where this uh, might well be settled. They're doing it, let's say, the old-fashioned way. What's great is I love Doom's insistence that it's his property because he paid for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tony clearly says that reimbursement has been made to the purchasing agent. Yeah. So somewhere you imagine there's a paper trail showing that, you know, payment was either refused or something went on in, in the procurement department at Stark <laughs> International. If his accounts payable department is, is uh, quick enough, I guess, I guess I'm not sure how quick you cancel that. Cancel that. Cause I imagine, I mean, this was not a Bitcoin transaction here in 1980. No. This may have been, this may have been stacks of gold bars changing hands. Right. Sure. You know, but this is one of the things that attracted me to this title. Yeah. And I really realized that, you know, uh, rereading this, thinking about just this issue, but then one of the most dramatic uh, scenes to me in this run is the Obadiah Stane, you know, yes. take, taking over Stark. I was well on my way toward a career in business, business education. I was on this path and this stuff really fascinated me. That stuff stuck to me as a reader as much of as much as the other stuff so i think i think you're uh, in in confirming you know how vital a part of the run the stark enterprises stuff is that that resonates with me that that makes sense to me right and um you know denny o'neill would continue that then mm-hmm. you're talking about stark and stain that's the famous cover to iron man yes, 173 exactly with that. they're taking that is, they're mm-hmm. changing the sign from yep. stark international to stain international yep and uh, of course, we all know, everybody knows Obadiah Stane mm-hmm. now because, again, he's yep. a big, big time movie star. The thing about the, this issue also is, like you say, both characters really do get equal representation. And you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, Doom's friend, Namor, right? <laughs> Namor is ostensibly a hero, but a lot of times falls on the villain side of the equation. Right. Right. But he's still he's, he's always himself. He, he's a you know, he has his own code of conduct right. and personal behavior. And, and yeah. that's and sometimes it brings him into conflict with others. Well, Doom is always the same way. Right. Doom has his own personal code of conduct. It's just that he happens to fall on the other side of that fence more often right. than not because of the people he is in con- in, in conflict with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here again. He, he has a gripe. This is how he wants to deal with it. To him, he's completely in the right. And he Absolutely, feels that, yeah. you know, that he shouldn't have to deal with literally calling him errand boy. Mm-hmm. What do you want, errand boy? And it's like, so he doesn't even feel like he has to deal with him. It's like, if, if, you're, if your boss wants to come talk to me, he should come himself. Right. So you, you get the feeling of justification from both men. Exactly. Even though, you know, mm-hmm. we, as, as readers of Iron Man, we're more likely to say, well, you know, Tony is right. He put a stop payment on this. He <laughs> canceled the deal, but Doom's like, no, I bought this stuff. It's mine. And I'll, right. I will use it for whatever purpose I want, which we are not really given a hint as to what his purpose is in this issue, which I right. like too. We know it's something with the time cube, but we don't know what he wants to do yet. I do love the scene. It's, it's right at the halfway point where, where they meet together You've got Tony literally sitting on the dock of the bay. Yes. <laughs> like he says, you know, this is where the components are. I know he's going to come, but it is so hilarious. He's just sitting there uh, back up against cargo container. Yeah. Just sitting there waiting for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. And, and I do like that, that notion that they each know what the other's going to have to do to attempt to resolve this. It's like they're, they're almost resigned to the fact both how they have to act and how they know the other person's going to act. Right. That same scene, this the, I love this pit of Latverian technology, this little assault craft. Mm-hmm. John Romita Jr. did a lot of the art for this era, but they did have other artists that mixed in. Uh, but they all, it, Bob Layton has this amazing ability to make 
to kind of not not necessarily impose his style because you can see this is John Romita Jr. But mm -hmm. to kind of smooth out a lot of the different artists to give it sort of a, a house style almost. And so this was something that Layton always kind of excelled at was pieces of technology like this, mm -hmm. whether it was mm -hmm. a piece of Stark technology or an enemy's technology. So the fight with this machine is a wonderful action set piece that really doesn't have Iron Man interacting with anybody. He's just interacting right. with the machine. Right. The pilots never interact with him, but just some, and then some great, some absolutely great work from John Romita Jr. for the, the pencils here, like in uh, when, when he is shot with the electrical cables that tangle mm -hmm. him up. Yep. Every panel where he is tangled up is a great pose and you just really see the, you know, even though it's a suit of armor, you really see the anatomy yes, yes. of the man there. And it, it re I, I really like that the, when he's about to get run down by the, the by the, uh, the assault craft and he's kind of slouched over and he's grabbing his right arm with his left and his shoulders are hung without any mm -hmm. words. You see exactly yep. what's going on there. Wonderful storytelling by, by JRJR and yes. Bob Layton. And then it ends in a pretty dramatic cliffhanger. They get zapped away somewhere, and uh, Hauptman is crazed and gleeful. Yes. He, he looks a little like the Red Ghost there, doesn't he? Ah, okay. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> Except he doesn't, he does, he's not screaming about his apes. You know, Dr. Doom's time cube, to me, in, in the annals of Marvel technology, mm -hmm. like his like, famous classic Marvel technology, the time platform is, is so simple, but isn't it just so beautiful in its own way? It, it's so dramatic with, we see it a couple of times here, with just the, uh, the plane rising mm -hmm. or falling and the, the, the people on the platform disappearing or appearing. It's so dramatic. You know, that, that panel there where they're both Doom and Iron Man are both in shock as they're being sent through on mm -hmm. the, the time platform. Yes. Again, another great bit of storytelling tells you everything you need in one little panel. If I think this, the two issues together, really, they I think they point out one of the big differences between DC and Marvel. And you know, we've been talked about, you know, a million times, but, you know, DC villains are very specifically tied to a hero. Yes. And then the heroes themselves are tied to their cities. So, you know, it's hard to imagine that, you know, the Joker even knows where Metropolis is, right? Couldn't, the Riddler could not find Star City on a map. So the crossover, the villain and the hero is much more rare at DC, but in the New York City of the 616, it's much more common. Doom has crossed paths with many heavy hitters, such as Punisher, Submariner, Hulk, you know, Squirrel Girl, yeah. and Tony Stark's Iron Boy, Iron mm -hmm. Man. And, you know, Doom even, you know, he's certainly willing to, to lend his, you know, his, uh, for a small appearance fee, he will show up in your book, you know, any... <laughs> I'm even low end, you know, D level characters. He's willing to bring prestige and eyeballs to titles and characters on their way to obscurity and cancellations. Books like I don't know, Fantastic Four, just yeah. as an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you know what's funny is is you may you you say that, and it's absolutely true. The the shared nature. Doctor Doom is a great example. of The shared nature because he works so well with so many different characters. Yeah. In the first year of Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. I've, I've seen different sides of this. I've seen it said that it was unintentional and I've seen it said it was 100% intentional. Luke Cage was of course, Marvel's first comic starring a African-American hero, Solo. Mm -hmm. And those first few issues, he interacts with villains. He has his own scene. He inter does not interact with the Marvel universe at large, despite being in New York. A common misconception is that he hangs out in Harlem. That's not true. Luke Cage operated out of Times Square in Manhattan. So despite operating out of Times Square in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, Cage does not interact with or any aspect of the Marvel Universe until Doctor Doom. <laughs> and so it the in, the, in the an, conspiracy in theory, an epic confrontation. Yes. And it's isn't it great? It's about because Doom stiffed him. Because Doom hired him and then stiffed him. And so Luke Cage steals a pogo plane and flies to <laughs> Latveria. That is a story that has to be read to be believed. But in the, the upshot of that is, is that the, the conspiracy theory that I've heard is that Marvel was hedging their bets as to whether right. Luke Cage would be a successful title. So they didn't put, they didn't put him, you know, crossing over with the Fantastic Four in the first issue or something like that, or Spider-Man swinging by or anything like that. So that if they had to cancel it, 
to no use harm, it. no foul to the rest of the, the so characters. The, yeah, and so the theory is, I want to say it's issues eight and nine. It's something like that. It's within the first year that is when Dr. Doom shows up, it's like, okay, we're saying this book is obviously successful enough <laughs> that we're going to keep running it. You don't get any more Marvel Universe than when you literally fly to Latveria <laughs> and fight Dr. Doom. Exactly. Obviously, I'm going to talk about it with uh, with the next issue as well, but, but these two guys are just, I mean, they're, they they are pretty close to mirror images of each other. I mean, they they are the two spoilers knights knights in armor of the Marvel universe. It makes perfect sense for mm-hmm. them to go mano a mano. Over on Earth Destruction Directive, my brother and I have often talked about the concept of top guys, mm-hmm. and and that's what they are. Now, again, you know, Iron Man, a top baby face, clearly, especially in this era, Doom. Coming off of the 70s supervillain team up, the Doom solo strip, more of a top guy who's kind of a, a tweener, right? Mm-hmm. Can kind of go mm-hmm. either way here, but still a top guy. And so when we'll see this on the cover of the next one, when top guys throw down, that's how you sell tickets. That's mm-hmm. how you you make book is, hey, we got two top guys and we're going to let them go at it. And then we're going to up the stakes a little bit here too. It's, it's one thing again, Dev, like, oh man, Tony St- and Iron Man's fighting the melter. You know, it's like that, that excites <laughs> a certain percentage of the readership. You say Iron Man's fighting Dr. Doom. And suddenly it's like, now you got people coming out of the yeah, woodwork for yeah. this one. So let's not delay any, any longer. The Invincible Iron Man 150 at a cover date of September 1981 a cover price of up to 75 cents because this is, as the cover says, a special double-sized 150th anniversary issue. Like I said, for this one, I am looking at the version that I pulled right out of my box from the basement. And the cover, again, Ramita Jr. and Layton, this is an absolute classic. We have seen this pose many times. It's I'm going to say our lead character, Dr. Doom, and the <laughs> secondary guest star, Iron Man. But they are face-to-face. Their noses are almost touching. Fists raised. They are ready to go at it. I mean, I'm not crazy, right? This is a classic pose. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. One of, the, one of the top Iron Man covers of all time, in my yeah. opinion. And I've seen it homaged many times, both with these two characters and, and uh, others, uh, others as, uh, as well. Now, a shout out has to go out to the former podcast, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, because I covered this issue with Trennis back in 2014, and I was able to find my notes. So this synopsis is based on my own prior synopsis, which I think does not make it plagiarism. (laughs) Can can you plagiarize yourself? (laughs) I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Now, a warning uh, to you, Luke, and to listeners. A double-sized anniversary issue requires a double-sized synopsis. Expect nothing less. <laughs> so we have Nightmare. That's night with a K. Again, brought to us by the terrific team of Leighton, Michelini, and JRJR. So we start with Doom's time machine hurtling him and Iron Man into the past. They assumed for a second that maybe... It was just some huge explosion in the lab. Maybe they're in Doom's courtyard. But they look around after they stop fighting, because, of course, they were still fighting. And they realize that they've gone a little bit further than they imagined. Doom sees that Hauptmann has sent them to the distant past, because the cube had been set for Camelot, because Doom wanted to consult with the great sorceress Morgana Le Fay. Now, thanks to these events, he's arrived a little earlier than he intended and in what might be a more permanent seeming state than he intended. So they haven't been there long and they're confronted by guards who take them prisoner because they're to be judged by King Arthur as interlopers, uh, trespassers. Iron Man, not surprisingly, quickly goes into appeasement mode, (laughs) demonstrating some of his armor's abilities, you know, court jestery stuff. Doom points out that in his homeland, he is the king, and he is not going to lower himself to perform parlor tricks like the other guy. Arthur puts off making a decision, offering the two visitors his hospitality, though they are to be kept as permanent guests 
though how long permanent is going to be is a bit up in the air. They're not technically prisoners, I guess, because King Arthur sends each of them a um, f- female companion mm. for the duration of their stay. Uh, Tony Stark, of course, has a particular set of priorities and decides to spend his favorite type of quality time with Eleonora, a woman who is, I don't know what, a thousand years younger than he is? <laughs> Dude. What about well, Bethany? Remember, you were just pining for her not that long ago. Well, Defend isn't your she actually a thousand years older than him? Oh, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I guess that yeah. makes it okay. Uh, I see. Oh. <laughs> uh, so she's a cougar. Hey, you know, some Got guys it. go no. for the older chicks, man. You I know, hey, it. it's all, it's okay. <laughs> man, oh, man. It's now. 2021, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It would make it. I, you know, the math, I, I'm a finance guy. Luke, I'm not that good with numbers, okay? (laughs) Now, on the other hand, Doom thinks with his actual brain and uses his girl to learn critical information. You might say he was pumping her in a slightly different way than Tony was. I'm Mm. just saying. So from her, he learns of Morgan Le Fay's whereabouts, leaves the castle, locates hers, and offers his services to the dark sorceress. Now Doom explains to her and to us that he's been visiting great magicians through time. We saw that last issue as well. And this is with one sole purpose to free his mother from the prison of hell, which as mythic quests go is pretty bold. And for Doom was quite personal. She was a magnificent woman, he says. He explains on every Midsummer's Eve Doom himself battles the demons of hell using his mother's own spells, hopes of freeing her spirit from its eternal confinement. And each year I failed because like all good little boys, Victor loves his mommy very much. Morgana strikes a bargain with, she'll help him. If he will lead her undead soldiers in final battle with King Arthur, Doom agrees. Sure. Sounds like a good deal. And the battle begins. And so we have the existing power structure, the establishment. Let's say the man (laughs) represented by King Arthur and Iron Man versus uh, Morgana Le Fay's undead army led by the righteously angry hero of the people, Dr. Doom. I'm just saying, Tony Stark is a total one percenter. However you want to say that, that, there's no no doubt. Okay. (laughs) Now, since it is his comic, Tony figures out that the only way to truly stop undead soldiers is to stop them at the source. So while the battle goes on, he flees and makes his way to LeFay's castle. Doom reaches the reasonable conclusion that he's just running away like a yellow coward. Uh, he is actually going to battle the sorcerers, though. So minor, minor discrepancy. Iron Man and Morgana battle in a fight between science and sorcery. Let me double check. Gets an Iron Man comic. He does defeat her. (laughs) But she vows revenge. Do not think you've escaped my wrath. For I shall study. I shall grow. I shall reap horrible vengeance on you when I return in a hundred issues. Okay, she didn't say that last part. (laughs) It's kind of implied. It's out there, though. It's out there. (laughs) Back at the battlefield, the undead soldiers become, well, dead. And Doom knows that LeFay has been defeated and his chance of rescuing his mommy have once again slipped from his grasp. And that chance is probably now gone forever. In a rage, he speeds over to the castle and busts through the wall, oh yeah, shouting, where is she? You heard me, lackey. Where have you taken the sorceress LeFay? Iron Man talks doom down a little bit admits there's no reason for them to stand camelot anymore they decide that the time is right to return to their own land to the present by which we mean 1981 but only with their combined geniuses and by cannibalizing each other's armor for parts and circuitry can they create a device that can possibly warp time around them so they realize the only way they will get home is to work together. Let that be a lesson, young readers, and knowing is half the battle. The two minds work together all through the night. The majestic 
leader of Latveria, and the red and gold personal valet. By dawn, they've developed an elaborate construction wired into both of their armored suits. They make a truce that if the device should work, they will allow each other to go their own ways, a truce for 24 hours. The final connection is made and time ripples around them and they find themselves back where they belong in the modern world of 40 years ago. The jury-rigged machine is reduced to slag around them and Doom remarks that the adventure is finished and I will keep my word, though I do hope you realize Avenger that we will meet again in a hundred issues. Okay, he didn't say that last part, but I think we can infer that. Iron Man simply says he'll be waiting. And the two travelers leave exiting down different sides of the mountain, each beginning the final leg of his long journey home, bringing this long synopsis home, the end. That, my friend, is a comic book story. Oh, yeah. And, and you hit the nail on the head. It's a comic book story. You know, <laughs> in, in today's world of comics, where comics are really just uh, serialized storyboards, there is no way to yeah. tell this story in anything but a comic. There, mm, are, there are too many ways, good. too that's many good. twists and turns. Yeah. This is a comic book story. This is, first off, it's meaty. I yeah. think it's 39 story pages is what Mike's right. Amazing World has it mm -hmm, at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can just, just pick this up and read this. And this is a, this story yes, has true. twists and turns and uh, surprises and, uh, action and uh suspense it's just a great comic from really top creators i mean that that's the thing is that you know there's always been this notion that well iron man was always kind of a b-level book and it's like well you know maybe iron man wasn't getting the mainstream stuff because he wasn't in cartoons and made right. any toys and stuff but i tell you what do you give me dave michelinie john Romita jr and bob layton on a book and that's pretty top talent in 1981 yeah, yeah. now not to have you speak for the entire iron man fandom but where in Shellhead's history does this sort of, you know, rank? You got Armor Wars, Demon in the Bottle. You got some classic stories. Yeah. You, does this one get its due? Is it thought of as a top 10, a top 20 Iron Man story? I would say that for folks that got into Iron Man around the time or before I did, absolutely. It is considered mm -hmm. generally one of the top Iron Man stories, this two-parter. And then the one you made reference to, yes. which is... Um, generally we call it recurring nightmare that's 249 <laughs> and 250 yeah. but this one is the, the the one that's always classic and is always uh, dropped and name checked as one of you know michelini and layton's top stories yeah. more modern readers i don't know if they necessarily think of this story just because first off of its age and it's a little bit out of the wheelhouse of the type of stories we get now with Iron Man, which are much more mm -hmm. like political techno thriller type right, generally. Right, true. But, yeah, but I, as a, from a traditional standpoint, absolutely. This is, I, this was one of the ones that kind of had earmarked in my mind. It, okay, I'm Italian. I got to tell you a story, right? To tell you a story. So <laughs> I was living in Aiken, South Carolina which is uh, near Augusta, Georgia. It's right by the line. So it's actually right near Augusta National Golf Course for you uh, sports fans. My good friend, Adam Tebow, he, had he grew up in North Augusta, which is uh, between Aiken and, and Augusta. It's in, on the South Carolina side. And he had come to visit me in Aiken for free comic book day because he knew where all the comic shops were in Augusta. So we rode into Georgia, we went to Augusta and we hit a bunch of comic shops for free comic book day. And that day in uh, it was 2005, I think, Concrete Day 2005, was when I started buying back issues of Iron Man. I found a bunch out of a dollar bin, and that, but those first 20 issues or so is what started me filling in all the back issues. Once I started that, once that releaser queue had been made, <laughs> you know, I, in my mind, I kind of had the, the big key books to look out for, and 149 and 150 and 249 and 250 were on that list of ones that I absolutely yeah. had to seek out and don't just settle, you know, don't just wait to find them in a dollar bin. If you can find them in a normal bin at a good price, get them. So yeah, this definitely, and, and it holds up. That's the amazing thing. Some 40 years, cheese and rice, 40 years after it was written, this is still top-notch Marvel stuff. You know, again, we talked about Iron Man and Doom, the obvious comparisons, the armored technology. There's some logic to it. Again, they are knights in armor. You've got modern myth and classic myth, you know, meeting each other. Again, it's so obvious, but it makes so much sense 
Mm-hmm. Don't know that it, it had been done up to this point to bring in Arthurian, to bring in literal, you know, heroes uh, from that era, you know, smash them, smash them together with these, with these modern myths. It just, it just makes so much sense. And I love the fact that you, we end up with grudging respect, you know, between our two characters. They admit that they need the other, you know, in order to accomplish this. They, they appreciate the work of each other. Uh, there's just so much there on the, again, the setting, the story, the art, the character development. It's just so much good happening here. Yeah. Yep. And, and just using the setting. You, you made reference to it in your synopsis. You know, you've got Iron Man and Dr. Doom in Camelot. And I love right there in the, on the splash page, we get a Monty Python reference. Because <laughs> Doom says Camelot and Iron Man says Camelot. Then the caption box says Camelot. Camelot. And then there should be yes. able to go, it's only a model. <laughs> but they're in Camelot. And so, you know, it makes perfect sense that King Arthur would provide, you know, companionship hey, now. for royal guests. And what I love too is that those two scenes are on they're they're on pages that face each other. Yes. And they are mirrored. And you know, it's it's a uh, kind of a, a Betty and Veronica situation also here. You got the one girl with dark hair and the one girl mm-hmm. with blonde hair. You know, if they had sent Cheryl Blossom redhead, they both live in <laughs> each other. Luckily we get don't get that. But it, it immediately, like you said, it, it demonstrates the differences in the characters and you know how Tony especially as we had said in the last issue, this was, this book was not just about Iron Man. It was very much about Tony Stark as a, Mm -hmm. as a man and him and his vices. And so he kind of gives into his vices, whereas Mm -hmm. doom doom's always the, the chess master, right? Doom looks at every situation of how can I twist this to my advantage? How can I manipulate this? How can I make this work? And that's exactly what he does. So everyone's a a demonstration. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I like that he apparently has a rocket engine under his cape. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, if I if I could get if I could pull off wearing that green cape and cowl, I, I might could do that. And uh, uh, Morgana Le Fay is basically the same color scheme as yes. as, as as Doom the the dark green and the and she has some some uh, gray uh, in her as well. They are a matched pair. I think Mystique shops at the Morgana Le Fay jewelry collection though. With the- <laughs> She's got the skull necklace right, and yes. the skull belt. I guess Mystique got the skull uh, tiara, right? So. <laughs> the artists really get to stretch themselves with scenes of knights in armor and undead, you know, undead armies fighting. And yeah, yeah. I mean, they even managed to throw in basically a pterodactyl, right? Because of wizardry. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and you know that—that's the thing. It—it it really is. It's one of the I think advantages of having an artist as versatile and with such a range of stories that he's worked on and is known for in his career, like John Romita Jr., that you can do a medieval fantasy story, essentially, and it still looks incredible. Yeah. You don't always get that. And, and I'm, I'm not an artist, and I, I, would, I never criticize an artist for their craft. But there are certain artists that work better on one setting or another it's just the nature of their art usually in my experience in talking with artists it boils down to what they enjoy doing right if they enjoy doing more fantastical stuff you might not pick them to do a science fiction story or Mm -hmm. vice versa Mm -hmm. whereas jrjr is just he's one of those old pros right so he just it's like what does it call for i can do that and Leighton is kind of the same way so the two of them really complement each other so well i the undead army the horror aspects. It, it looks like a, you know, like it really, to me, honestly, it looks most more like a, a DC mystery book when Morgana is talking to doom and we see all the, the graveyard of her troops and there's the, the tall, narrow panels. They're rising out of it. These up, skeletal, yeah, the skeletal warriors rising out of their grave. It's like, that looks like something out of like house of mystery, but it, mm-hmm. it's a perfect fit here in Iron Man. Yeah. Visually it's, it's a real treat as well. I've never read this story on glossy paper and I don't know that it would really help at the, yeah. especially the, um, it, it, because of the medieval setting, the newsprint really helps the story. It gives it that, a certain richness. I think it all goes back to Fantastic Four Annual 2, that origin of Doctor Doom, where they layered right. in the sorcery, the, mm-hmm. the, the being a, 
being of the uh, of the Roma people, um, right? You know, and being able to tie in that that uh, Doom himself is the combination of science and sorcery, uh, technology and, and magic, mm-hmm. and that does set him apart. It sets him apart from the magic characters. It sets him apart from the technological character, like Iron Man. Yeah. One other creator I, I do want to mention, because first of all, I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's one of the great things about Doom and why he's endured, Yeah, is that he works so well in different settings. Um, you know, uh, again, there are some great, especially at Marvel, there are some great villains. You know, those those villains who, you know, if, if life had taken a different turn, might be in the mm-hmm. hero. Right. Not all of them work as well in different settings. You know, the one a lot of people point to is Magneto. And Magneto is a great character. Magneto doesn't really work in a magical setting, though. You send Magneto in this situation, it doesn't quite work the same way as Doom, just because mm-hmm. he doesn't have that crossover but between those, those, those elements. You know, we've been talking about John Romita Jr. and, and Bob Layton. I want to give some props to Bob Sharon, who is the colorist. Mm-hmm. There is some, the, the one that jumps out at me every time. First off, the, the, the opening splash page where they're falling through time. Yeah. The colors in that look incredible. The, the art itself is crazy. It looks like a Steve Ditko, uh, Dr. Strange panel. Yeah, the colorings, they don't make any objective sense, right? Iron Man's no. blue, Doom is purple, there's green and yellow and orange, but as a, as a piece of art, yes, it makes all the sense. The other one is it's towards the back half. It's when, uh, when Iron Man is about to confront Morgan. When uh, when she sends out the uh, the crystals at him, mm-hmm. and she's using her her power, and so now now her skin is like a yellow oh, yeah. Yeah. with red eyes, and her her black gloves with the blue, and her raven black hair. It's striking in its colors. You know, e- even just the colors of the the b- couple of pages before that, we get it's almost a splash page. It's not quite. It's almost a splash page, but all the colors on of uh, the. Uh, the warriors on both sides, mm, all the yeah. livery on all the knights and the pink sky. Uh, colorists don't always get a lot of praise mm. from this era. And part of it is, of course, the paper. But part of it is that we you know we, we tend to look at pencilers and sometimes inkers, but rarely colorists. But I think that Sharon's work adds a lot to that, yes. to the book here. And mm-hmm. it's little things like that that you don't necessarily notice until you're flipping through it and looking at the colors. It's like, man, that is, it's striking. The, the, the line work, the inking, the colors, all of it, even the, the layouts, everything comes together in this book. It's just one of the, just a beautiful book all told. The whole team, just totally rocking it. Yeah. And I mean, the nice thing is, I mean, the story does wrap up there. It is fully, it is completely the end but it's yep. been revisited. It's the there's if they never told the next story, this would have been all right. There's there's nothing hanging there, but there are threads. Right. And so the same team, or at least it was a, a yeah, I guess it would have been the same team, 249, 250. Eight years later, they revisit it. And then amazing to me, another 20 years after that, we get the legacy of Doom four issue miniseries. Yes. In 2008, again, Leighton and Michelinie. It's like these guys, they recognize the world that they created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just want to revisit, you know, that, um, that aspect of it. It just, again, to me, that tells you how good the story is and how resonant the story is, both to readers yeah. and, and to these creators, I think. The second one, 249 and 250, Bob Leighton actually was a full-time artist at that point. Mm-hmm. So he was okay. doing the pencils and inks. Oh, good. And, uh, and also still doing plots that they always plot together. By the time you get to Legacy of Doom, Ron Lim is now the penciler. Another mm-hmm. great, another yeah. one of my favorites. I know Ron Lim more for his work on Venom more than anything else. Sure. But Of course his, you do, Luke. You know, Lethal Protector, you know, was Mark Bagley and Ron Lim. But, uh, but their work together on Legacy of Doom with, with Leighton inking over Ron Lim was also, you know, again, it's, it's clearly Ron Lim, but it also still fits thematically with the other books because of yeah. the, the, uh, the line work over, over the line work by, by Bob Layton. So yeah, all, all of them are, are really good reads. The Legacy of Doom does get to expand things a little bit just because it's four issues. So it's slightly right. longer yeah. 
slightly more decompressed. So it's yeah. kind of a trade-off, but all right. three of them are, are, I mean, this one, obviously we we've raved about it for what, 45 minutes here or so. The, the next one is, is fantastic. Ironically, it's actually part of technically acts of vengeance, which is astounding. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, acts of vengeance. That was that one with the stuff. Oh yeah. Then we also went to Camelot too. Yeah. And then legacy of doom, which is you can, which I believe you can get just in a, in a trade paperback by yep. itself now. Mm-hmm. So any other praise you want to uh, heap upon these books or just upon Doom himself, you know? Uh, well, I mean, if, you, if know, you know it's, it's good for what's you. Really, uh, well, yeah, I will say this about Doom. I do think it's funny that they knew that readers were used to seeing Dr. Doom in that very marginal title that you mentioned, uh, <laughs> Fabulous Five, whatever that one was. So I did think it was kind of funny that there were hostess ads in both 149 and 150 featuring either the entire Fantastic yep. Four or a member of the Fantastic <laughs> Four. Because in 149, we get one of the most bizarre ones ever where it's the Fantastic Four where they are they are canoeing and they run into trouble and somehow Hostess Fruit Pies save the day, which is an odd I mean, choice. if you think about it. Yeah. This makes sense. And whereas in this one, we have the Human Torch where a bunch of guys were stealing money that was raised at a TV telethon for a town orphanage. One of the thieves looks like Matt Murdock. <laughs> raises more questions than it answers. I'm just going to leave it out there. But uh, now, Let me just ask you one minor technicality. If there's a TV telethon, people are calling in to make pledges. How are those converted into bags of money immediately? Or is that just not so? We're just, I'm Sorry. I believe unstable. it's possible I'm thinking too hard. Are you going to say unstable molecules? Unstable molecules. <laughs> Nothing they can't do. You know, shout out to Andrew Leyland, used to co-host uh, the Fantastic Cast. His favorite, the Flame Lasso, makes an appearance in this as well. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That's so true. they knew that people were picking this up because they see Dr. Doom on the cover. It's like, hey, remember that other book that he used to appear in? Maybe you should buy that too because it's not selling too well. As always, it is great to talk to you. Good to have you here on the network again. Oh, well, like I said, Alan, thank you for having me. I've said it before. I I was the first guest on Relatively Geeky, and I'm glad to come back anytime, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, his his lordship, Dr. Doom, or Cerebus, or Morbius, or other guys (laughs) whose name end in S, or whatever. But uh, And if it all crashes down now, you'll be the last. (laughs) Wait, well, wait a minute. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that just yet. Yeah, you, you, you see, it's a long game we've been playing. <laughs> but uh, as I said, always, always great. You, you, um, you know, you and M have given me so many hours of enjoyment uh, yes. over the years <laughs> on the network. So I'm always glad to contribute a little bit. And I must say, a little you know, peek behind the curtain. We've been talking about covering 149 and 150 on Doomspeak for quite a while. Yes. So I am. I'm glad that we are we are finally able to do it. And, um, you know, folks, if you want to read this and you don't want to go and actually, uh, you know, drop some cash on some back issues, there is a, from 1995, there was the Iron Man versus Dr. Doom trade paperback, yes. which collected 149, 150, 249, 250. And there is also from 2008, there is a hardcover, which is the Iron Man Doom Quest hardcover which collects the same four issues. So that one, I've seen that hardcover a bit more frequently than the soft cover, but you can go out there and find it. Plus I'm, I'm almost certain that that's on Comixology if you want to yeah. go, go that route. So definitely worth checking out. Just and, and, even if you're not an Iron Man fan, you know, I'm, I'm assuming everyone's a Doom, Dr. Doom fan. I mean, that's just an yeah. assumption. Uh, <laughs> but even if you're not an Iron Man fan, you will, you will dig these. These are, to me, are just classic, classic Marvel comics. And you will recognize them because they'll have the cover of 150 or a version of that yes. Doom Iron Man face-off. Absolutely. Talk about top guys. That's a wrestling poster right there, isn't it? It is. It, yeah. it pretty much looks like they're, they're, they are getting <laughs> they're ready to grapple. Camelot on pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Luke, where can listeners hear more of you? I mean, in addition to your excellent voice acting on the most recent Quarterbin episode. <laughs> I mean, other than that, as you move into the next phase of your career, other than that. Yes. If you're not tired of hearing my voice already, um, you can check out my podcast, which uh, my main show is Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju 
is Japanese giant monsters. So we take a look at all aspects of Japanese giant monster culture, movies and TV shows, comic books, video games, toys, and, and all of that. You can find that at twotruefreaks.com. Also at Two True Freaks, I am also the co-host of The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, along with my brother Jason, uh, Two True Freaks OG Chris Honeywell, and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler, where we talk about horror as a genre, almost exclusively about film. Lately, we've been doing, uh, we've had a whole series of, of zombie movies just kind of randomly come up. It wasn't really planned, but we've covered a lot of those. And uh, I am also the co-host of Get Back to the Wrestling, finally. There is a podcast about professional wrestling, and uh, that one is uh, also co-hosted by my brother Jason and the Hair Metal Hero. And again, you can find all of those at twotruefreaks.com. And as of this recording, I have just launched an Earth Destruction Directive YouTube channel uh, where we are going to be putting all the episodes going forward of Earth Destruction Directive. So go on YouTube, search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can find us there. If you would like to hit that red subscribe button, I'm not going to say no. So uh, thank you. And uh, I hope that if any of those sound interesting, that you will check them out. Great. Thank you, Luke. So lovely listeners, if you have any feedback on this episode, either of these issues doom's rivalry with iron man or anything related to our good doctor the rightful ruler of latveria don't hesitate to contact me you can do that via email relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on our facebook or blog post for the episode the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com thanks for listening take care and hail doom Hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom!